Good morning, church. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb. I'm so thankful to be with you this morning as we come together and worship once again. If you're in the room this morning, let me hear from you. Listen, it's good to be in worship together in this place. And for those who are watching online, thank you for joining us this morning as well. It's so good to be all together in this room as we open up God's word. Um, my, my hope would be each and every morning as we come here on a Sunday, we don't come because we have nothing else to do, right? There's other things we could do, sleep in, go to Waffle House, whatever. But we come here because we believe that as we gather together as a church family, God does something in our hearts. He changes us in some kind of way. And so that's my prayer for us this morning. As we open up his word together, as we come before him, that he would teach us and that he would change us. So we're wrapping up our sermon series today, this final week. And um, to kind of like wrap things up, I just want to tell you a story about my son, Owen. There's a lot of stories about Owen, but one of them goes like this. I said to him, listen, Mark my words, if you go outside and ride this new scooter that you just got for Christmas without your shoes on, there's going to be some, some consequences. Something's going to happen. You're going to get hurt, to which every parent in the room says, amen, right? We've all said this kind of thing. Mark my words. If you don't listen to what I'm saying, there's going to be consequences. You're going to wish you had. And so sure enough, it's exactly what happened. Now, you can probably you know, feel sorry for Owen or sympathize with him a bit because the scooter he got for Christmas was very cool. The lights would light up on the wheels as it would turn. On the back, when you hit the brake, it would hit the concrete. It would spark everywhere and would leave marks on the concrete, but no pain, no gain. So it was super cool. So you can understand why there was like maybe some disobedience and a lack of patience. And so sure enough, he goes out in the morning out front of the house, no shoes on, rides his scooter until finally I hear screaming coming from the front yard. And all I could think to myself was, I told you so. But I didn't. So I walked out the front door and came out, and sure enough, Owen had slid down feet of concrete with the top of his foot with no shoe on, taken lots of skin off. It was pretty disgusting, to be honest with you. There was blood, he was tears, he was freaking out, and, but luckily a Band-Aid kind of made things better. He still has a scar still to be able to show this is where the wound happened. But I told him, mark my words, if you don't wear shoes, something is going to happen and it's going to happen bad. Every parent in the room knows exactly what this is like. When we speak to our children, we want them to understand our words hold weight. The things we're saying to you, we're saying it to you because if we want you to listen and avoid pain and trouble. Am I correct, parents? Children, listen. Owen found out this the hard way. But the truth is, just like parental advice, in the Bible, we've been given all kinds of commands and directions and guidance from Jesus as well. And many of us in the room, just like children, we choose not to listen. We choose to go our own way and do our own thing. This whole sermon series has been about looking at these words that Jesus has given us to help guide our lives, to help show us how to live, to give us commands and promises that we can live by, but too often we completely neglect them when we don't listen. In a lot of Bibles, maybe one you have right now, there's actually parts when Jesus speaks in the scriptures that's so weighty, it's actually all written in red called the Red Letter Bible. This is what Jesus has to say to us. We've been in the midst of a series for the past few weeks looking at some of the phrases that Jesus spoke first and how they made them their way into our cultural context. Things that we say all the time that actually he's the one who coined. Before we ever said it, he said it. And so he spoke to us and he warned us about wolves in sheep's clothing. He commanded us to turn the other cheek, not let the blind lead the blind. And he reminded us that who much is given, much is expected. And when we live these kinds of ways out, when we listen to Jesus, we experience the full life that God wants for us. Now, if you have not listened to some of the weeks of this series, I encourage you to go back. The pastors have done a great job wrestling with all these passages. Go back and take a listen. And for our last week this morning, I want to look at some of the final words that Jesus says actually before he is arrested, put on trial, crucified, and killed. 
Jesus and his disciples are spending time in a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer with one another. At this point in time, there's 11 disciples, but as you know, there was originally how many? 12. They had a meal right before this time in the garden, and at that meal, there was 12 disciples there until one named Judas. He leaves to an unknown location. But the passage we're gonna look today, we find the whole story. It becomes very clear what's taking place here. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 49, here's what the Bible says. It says, while he was still speaking, Jesus, to his disciples, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Then, going once to Jesus, he did just that. So we find out what took place with Judas. We know from other gospels, other contexts, that Judas went to the chief priests, struck a deal with them, and said, here's the thing. If you give me 30 pieces of silver, I will show you where Jesus is. I'll take you right to him. So after years of working alongside Jesus, Jesus, Judas leads a mob armed with clubs and swords right to the disciples and Jesus praying in the garden. And Judas says, here's the signal. The man that I greet with a kiss, that's Jesus. Arrest him. Can you imagine being one of the 11 praying with Jesus? I mean, the kind of anger that I would feel towards Judas, one who was one just like us following Jesus, now has turned him over to the authorities for what? 30 pieces of silver? I mean, the kind of anger that would burn inside of those disciples surely would have caused something to bubble up from the bottom. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 26. The story continues in verse 50. Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you've come for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, they seized Jesus, and they arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. He drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. But Jesus said this, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw by the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that this must happen? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd then, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, you didn't arrest me there, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and they fled. So Judas says, the one that I greet with the kiss, that's Jesus, arrest him. And so the mob moves in to take Jesus and in a desperate motivation, I'm sure, one of the disciples, the gospel of John tells us is a man named Peter, which we all expected, right? Peter pulls out a sword, he swings it at the high priest's ear, his name is Malchus and he cuts his ear off. In the midst of the wild conflict, Jesus then speaks a phrase that's commonly used in our culture when he speaks to Peter and he says, Peter, put away the sword. For those who live by the sword will die by the sword. You see, Jesus is warning Peter that to result to violence is not only a deviation from this kingdom that he's ushering into the world, but it's also a slippery slope that puts him in danger of being at the end of the tip of a sword as well himself. So here's the phrase for this week, for this morning. Mark Jesus' words, he said, if we live by the sword, we will die by the sword. See, when our culture, when we say this kind of phrase, those who live by the sword will die by the sword, what we mean is this, what goes around comes around. 
When we act in certain kinds of ways, often those same kinds of ways of acting turn back on us. To live the way of violence, anger, vengeance, malice to those around us ensures they'll be turned back on us as well. To pull the sword by the way the things that we say and the things that we do is to invite others to pull the sword as well. And so Jesus says to Peter, put it away. And maybe you know someone in your life, in your family, in your community, in your context that seems all too eager to pull the sword at any encounter that is conflict or disagreement. When they feel like they've been wrong, they feel like there's injustice, maybe that person is you. And some of us, when we act out in this kind of way, our weapons of choice are things like gossip and slander, sabotage, emotional and verbal abuse, and sometimes even physical violence. This is not the way of the Christian. This is not the way of God. And it certainly doesn't usher in this kingdom that Jesus was bringing to the earth. So though Peter thought he was defending what was the highest priority, defending his rabbi, defending his teacher, he missed out on what God was doing in the bigger picture. You see, God does not work through violence and coercion. That the power of God was about to be put on display at the end of this passage, at the end of this story, as Jesus is arrested and he's actually crucified on the cross. The reason I think this conversation this morning is so important is because I believe at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus is to be someone who does the hard work of putting away the sword rather than wielding it. This is not weakness. This is not defeat, but this actually shows what real true strength, real true victory looks like, and Jesus puts it on display. You see, the problem is this. When we live by the sword, it just simply becomes an arms race. So in this passage, you have this mob that shows up carrying clubs and swords. What's the first thing that happened? Peter pulls what? His own sword to defend. When we live by the sword, it becomes an arms race. So Peter is reprimanded. Jesus takes the ear and he heals Malchus's ear on his head. This is the last uh, miracle Jesus actually does before he's crucified on the cross. If he wouldn't have done this and told Peter to put it away, this surely would have escalated even further. See, living by the sword puts us on a trajectory of violence towards one another that knows no end. In fact, in 1986, there were 60,000 active nuclear weapons around the world. Sorry, 70,000. 70,000 nuclear weapons around the world. Today, there are nearly 3,800 active nuclear weapons and a total of 14,000 worldwide. Why? It's an arms race. You see, the minute one entity has some kind of violent way of dealing with conflict, the other person has to respond in kind. Otherwise, they put themselves at a disadvantage. It becomes a one-up and a one-up. You see, an arms race is not just limited to modern warfare. I would argue that in relationships all over this room, there are arms races that are happening, maybe even this morning. That when one person pulls the sword through word or through deed, in our mind and our heart, someone else feels the need to do the same. When we carry this mentality into the workplace, the schoolyard, social media, of course, and even in our families. I'm embarrassed to tell you that within the Miller household, it can easily become a war zone from time to time. I know you think that might not be the case, but it's actually very true. And in the Miller household, it's something very simple. A simple shot across the bow may start it. It could be an unmade bed, a mouthy comment, sibling spat, pee on the toilet seat, that kind of stuff. Take something very small to then become an offense that has to be retaliated against. You add stressed out parents, a pandemic, gas prices, all the things. 
and you have a perfect recipe for World War III in my home, maybe in yours too. And this is what happens. So one person pulls the sword, everyone else pulls the sword as well. And so as the spiritual dad of the family, the pastor within the family, I see it as my job to make sure to bring shock and awe. Just to make sure everybody knows I mean business. So when things go down, I'm not proud of it, but I'm like 30 seconds from going Pompeii at any moment. I'm not proud of it. I can go from zero to 100 like that because I want to protect the kind of love that God wants to have within our family. But here's the problem. When I act in this kind of way, I raise my voice, I ground someone, I take something away, I respond in kind, I pull the sword and it becomes an arm race between all of us within the family. I'm actually not furthering the kingdom of God within my own family. I'm actually going against what God would have happen within the family. I'm escalating things to a point where it almost can't be taken back. And if we're honest, what happens within relationships, what happens within our life, wherever it happens, when we have acts of violence against one another, when we become angry with one another, does it ever really solve the problem? Are the wrongs ever really made right? I would argue that when we respond with violence and aggression, it only begets violence and aggression. Another problem with living by the sword is this, that we, we can win the battle, perhaps, but we can still lose the war. We might win the battle, but we'll still lose the war. In the book of Luke, chapter 22, we find out it's a very interesting passage that within the 12, 11 disciples, there were two swords, two swords that went into the prayer garden at that day with Jesus. So sure enough, when the mob shows up, there are two swords between the 11, 11 of them. So let's just say for a moment, the disciples decide to defend Jesus with the swords they've had. Peter showed us exactly how to do it. Let's just say they were actually able to fend the mob off. They get Jesus into the garden deeper. He's rescued. They feel like they've won the battle. Here's the problem. There is something else going on that the disciples seem to know nothing about. A bigger picture taking place, something that Jesus knows about, but they don't seem to understand. It's the reason that Jesus says, Peter, put the sword away. And then he says to the whole crowd, listen, this has to happen for prophecy, for what's been written in the Old Testament to actually come to pass, to come true. Sometimes in relationship with one another, we might feel like we've won the battle. I've, I've won up that person. I finally defeated them. But in the end, we might miss the bigger picture of what's going on. I believe what Jesus is referring to in the Old Testament is multiple different prophecies, but one in particular in Isaiah chapter two, verse four, written hundreds of years before Jesus shows up on the earth. Here's what Isaiah says in verse two, or chapter two, verse four, as he writes about what the Messiah would do when he comes to the earth. He says, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This prophecy about this Messiah, Jesus, was that when he would show up and rule over all the nations, he would remove the need for settlement of conflict by war. Instead, his divine knowledge and wisdom and guidance to the nations would bring about true peace. See, Jesus knew that Peter's violent outburst was actually getting in the way of the bigger picture of what he was trying to do as opposed to bringing it about. And Jesus came not to bring this new world about through violent resistance, but by sacrificial love. There's a bigger thing happening here. You can win the battle, but you can lose the war. And Jesus knew this. There's a picture 
that Isaiah paints in chapter two, verse four, when he talks about the nations beating their swords into plowshares. Swords used for weapons and violence, instead turning them to plowshares, which are used to cultivate the ground and bring forth life, food, sustenance for the world. What he's saying is that this new kingdom that Jesus is bringing about is about producing life, not death. He's gonna take the weapons of violence and they will become tools of cultivation. He'll take weapons of violence and make them tools of cultivation. I was researching this this week, and it's kind of interesting. It shows up all over within our cultural context. And one of the places is actually at the United Nations building. In a garden outside of there, there's a bronze statue that looks like this. It's a very muscular uh, man with little clothes, sorry. But he has a sword that he's beating with this huge hammer, and he's beating into plowshares. It's a reminder that this weapon now is going to be changed and transformed, beaten into something that instead will bring life to those around you. Based off of Isaiah chapter two, verse four, when this Messiah comes, everything will change. Not only that, but I also found out there's a small museum in Ontario, Canada. And this museum is actually called the Swords to Plowshare Museum. And what they've done is they have taken all kinds of artifacts and vehicles from military and from from war, and they've repurposed them and modified them for civilian purposes. And they put on display what this looked like. So they have tanks that have been turned into essentially tractors to pull plows to the ground to plant food for the world. And not only that, they also have tanks that have been turned into snow plows. It's Canada, people. So there's snow, and it's used now to help as opposed to harm to bring life as opposed to bringing death. All based off of Isaiah 2, verse four. So this prophetic word that Jesus knew about from the Old Testament, the sculpture at the UN building, this museum in Canada, all point to one life-changing, transformative truth. Just because violence, anger, vengeance, and malice and conflict have been the way of life, it doesn't mean that it can't change. It can be transformed in fact, it's what the Messiah has come for. Put away the sword, Peter. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. If we don't want to die by the sword, we have to turn them into plowshares, into things that give life. So whatever weapons may be in your sense, whatever you choose to use to harm others in conflict with people around you, these words that Jesus invites us into is to join him in this life-giving way of living. Rather than pulling swords to engage in hostility, we take the energy and we point it toward things that make the world a better place. I came across this amazing article about this man named Darwin Casey Diaz. And Casey Diaz was one of California's most violent criminals. He was brought to the United States by his parents. By the time he was 11, he was in a gang. At age 16, he was sentenced to 13 years in prison for second-degree murder and 57 counts of robbery. While he was at New Folsom State Prison, he earned three years of solitary confinement for his actions. He was not well-behaved. That's where he turned his life around, though. He met Jesus, and everything changed. After years in prison, he was 24 years old when he got out. For the past 20 years, he has been a pastor who's been investing in the lives of at-risk kids who are one step away from finding themselves in the same place that he found himself. See, while he was in prison, he was in charge of the weapons to be distributed whenever a riot would break out. He had 13 under his bed mattress, he said. When the riot went off, he made sure the right people got what weapon. He said life was very cheap. He said one day he was sitting in his cell, laying on the bed, and he was daydreaming, and 
He looked over at the wall and he said, all of a sudden a movie began to play in front of him. He began to see his whole life in front of him. As a young child where he grew up, all the things that he experienced while he was in the gang. And all of a sudden he saw a bearded man carrying a cross. An angry mob yelling and, and jeering at him as he came up on top of this hillside. He said, two rough looking men took a nail and hammers and they hammered him to the cross and they raised him into the air. He said, the bearded man looked at him and he said, Darwin, I've done this for you. He said, as soon as he said that, it sent cold chills down my spine because nobody called me Darwin. Everyone called me Casey. That was my nickname. And all of a sudden he realized that God was speaking to him. He didn't understand it fully, but he said he got on the, the floor of his cell and he began to confess his sins. He said, God, I'm sorry for hurting so many people. God, I'm sorry for robbing so many families. And with each confession, he said, I felt the weight come off my shoulders. I vowed that whatever I could do for the rest of my life to keep kids from ending up in this rock bottom place, I would do it. And his whole life changed. See, I don't assume that everyone in this room has found them in the same kind of, themselves in the same kind of place as, as Casey, but many of us by our actions, our words and our deeds, mind and heart, We've put ourselves in our own prisons. We've put ourselves in our own kind of bad situations by, by violence and anger and hatred toward people around us. This is not the way of Jesus. Instead, this message of Jesus is giving us an opportunity to pound these swords into plowshares, to change the way that we live, to offer forgiveness, to speak a gentler tone at home, to not escalate at work, to bless those who harm us. We take our, our swords and we pound them into plowshares. I think the reason the author uses this particular word in Isaiah is because to pound swords into plowshares is hard work. It takes effort. And for some of us, it's a difficult situation to live this kind of life, but this is the way that Jesus calls us to live and what he invites us into. There's one individual within the scriptures that we know who got this, and his name was Paul. You see, Paul's life transformed greatly from living violently against the early church, from arresting those, putting them into prison, to having his life transformed, becoming a new person and living a sacrificial kingdom life. In fact, he wrote almost um, half of the New Testament. Paul's life was transformed. He gives us a pretty clear command on how we should live our lives in relationship to one another. That's very different from the way the world lives. Here's what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be owned or grasped or taken advantage of. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says, this is the way that you should live in relationship with one another. Have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who didn't see his equality with God, something to be held on to or grasped. What do you notice from the story? He says, Peter, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Then he says, don't you know, I could call on my father right now and have legions of angels to come and rescue me. But that's not how this is gonna go down. I give my life up freely, sacrificially, that's how the world changes. He did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped or owned. Whatever power we have, we don't consider it something to hold on to. Instead, we, we hold it with open hands. He became obedient. He became a servant, 
and he gave up his life on a cross. See, this is what true power looks like. This is how the world actually changes, not by weapons or by might or by control, but by Jesus going to a Roman cross and giving up his life. What's most interesting about these last few moments of Jesus's life is that no one takes Jesus's life from him. He gives it up willingly. Take the instance in this garden of Gethsemane. It's the first of three moments like this. This mob comes. They come with swords and clubs. What's Jesus say? I've been in the synagogues teaching and you haven't arrested me there. And here you are now in the garden to take me. So Peter pulls his swords out. He cuts an ear off. Jesus takes it, says, this is not how this happens. He heals the man and he gives his life over to those who came to take it from him. You see, no one takes Jesus's life from him. He gives it freely. Within a few hours, he's before Pilate in an unfair trial. And Pilate says to him, he says, listen, you better start talking. I think in John 19, you better start talking because I have the power to either free you or to crucify you. And Jesus says, you don't have any power or authority other than what's been given to you from heaven. See, no one takes Jesus's life from him. He gives it up freely. And then when Jesus is on the cross and he breathes his last, the Bible says that he commits his spirit to God and he dies. No one takes his life from him. He gives it freely. It's a sacrificial act that Jesus does because he knows this is the way the world changes. This is what he's come for. And swords only get in the way. My kids and I just watched a really great movie called Raya and the Last Dragon. Anybody in the room seen that movie? All three of you, good. Okay, so it's a really great movie on Disney Plus and we were watching it the other day and it's really fun. We got to the end, my kids are like, I love this movie. This is really cool. We should watch They've watched it a couple times now. But I got to the end of the movie and I was like, I've seen this movie before. I think it's called Moana. It's just different characters in less water. But it's the same story. And then I started thinking, I was like, actually, every Disney movie is the same story. The same thing happens. And the same thing goes about. And at the very end, it ends in the same kind of way. And every story ends like this. You finally have a character who steps up and sacrificially saves the day. Someone who finally steps up and and brings everything back to right. Someone who gives of themselves so that people can be rescued and, and things can be changed. You know why? This is the oldest story that's ever been told. This is the story of Jesus. One who came and who gave his life as a ransom for many, the Bible says. One who came and gave his life to defeat death and sin so we could really truly live once again. There's a reason why we love Disney stories because all of us, we want to live this kind of life in the end. We don't want to live the way of violence or anger or frustration or malice. We don't want that kind of life. If we're really honest, we want to live a life that matters, that makes a difference, that brings transformation. It's the way of Jesus. That's how things change. It's true power. It's true transformation. And it comes at a cost. True power is when a sacrificial act is chosen on purpose because it leads to a better world. See, when we're committed to a life of violence, we have all kinds of weapons that we wield. But the Bible says this, we are called to carry our cross, not wield a sword. We're called to carry our cross. Now, I know this is a hard message. 
This is a difficult message for our culture because we have been so ingrained to believe that if we just talk louder, hit harder, act angrier, then we can be the one who's on top. But that is not what we've been taught to live by Jesus. Don't get me wrong. We are called to fight for this kingdom of God. We are called to stand up against injustice. We are commanded to protect the vulnerable. We are expected to condemn for the kingdom, but we are meant to do so with different kinds of weapons. See, Jesus' weapons of choice were bread and wine. That's how Jesus fought. So just before Jesus and his disciples are in the garden of Gethsemane praying together, just before the mobs show up and arrest Jesus, just before Judas turns Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver, Jesus is having a meal with all 12 of them. And they're reclined at a table, and Jesus, as he's talking to them, he takes the bread from the table before them and he lifts it before them. He gives thanks and then he breaks it. And he says to them, this bread, it's my body. that's gonna be broken for you. It'll be shredded for you, nailed to a cross for you. For every act of violence, every act of anger, every way that you've gone astray, my body will be broken for you. And then Jesus took the cup and he raised it before them. He said, see this cup? This is my blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sin for you and for the entire world. Jesus said, take and eat and drink my broken body, my shed blood. See, when Jesus comes to the earth, the kind of battle that he wages, the kind of fight that he wages, it's a sacrificial death. It's a giving of his life, a breaking of his body, a shedding of his blood, so that we in turn may do the same thing for the world around us. Seems counterintuitive. Many might say it would never work. But this is the way the world changes. And Jesus invites us this morning to remember as we take the cup and the bread together, as we take communion and take part in the sacrificial act once again, he invites us to live this way of life as well. So this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, we come before you today as your church, as your people. We are thankful for your sacrificial gift for giving your life that we might experience new life. So Jesus, today, as we take part in communion with one another, may you remind us that we live in a relationship to those around us. And you've called us to live with love, to lead with love. So Jesus, would you show us today what it looks like to see the world change for our church, our community, the state and this world we need you, Jesus. May we live to demonstrate that for others. So this morning together, may this communion, this bread and this cup be to us today the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.